I'm Richard Hollingham and welcome to West Yorkshire and another edition of the Planet Earth podcast. This time we'll be searching for invasive crayfish, looking for unusual clouds and spying on seabirds. And courting for shags uh, means they're they're preening each other's necks and uh, shouting at each other a lot. And they tend to curl their necks round each other and put their heads together. So it's kind of a equivalent of a shag hug. More later. The native white-clawed British crayfish is in trouble. Weakened by a parasite, this endangered species is being driven out of waterways by the North American signal crayfish. Alison Dunn from the University of Leeds has been studying the plight of the white-clawed crayfish. She's with me, as is Neil Hadaway, who worked on this research, and Martin Christmas from the Environment Agency. Now, Alison, you've brought me to a stream, or as we're in Yorkshire, we should say a beck, which is meandering through the park around us. We're just north, about three miles north of the, of the centre of Leeds. And there are crayfish in this beck. There are, yes. There are crayfish if you lift rock. So if you look under nice big hidey holes, they like to hide away in refuges. And at the minute, they're quite inactive because the water's still cold. But as it warms up in the spring, we'll start to see them, especially at night if you come and look in the water. As we can't find a crayfish, you have brought one with you. And uh, we've got one in the box here because I think people perhaps don't know what what they look like. I was quite shocked how, how large they are. It's really... Either, I suppose, like a, a large prawn or a small lobster. Yes, well, it's, it's a good meal, really. <laughs> and that's a signal crayfish. They're bigger than the white-clawed crayfish. So it would fit, I don't know, it fits in the, the palm of your hand. Actually, if you include the, the claws and that, it's, it's almost the size of a hand, isn't it? Yes, it's got very big claws that it uses for displaying to its competitors and fighting with. Now, this is the signal crayfish. This is the uh, American invader you're concerned about the white-clawed crayfish, the native crayfish? Yes, we are. The native crayfish has been declining in this country since the 1970s when the signal crayfish was introduced. And in fact, Yorkshire is one of the remaining strongholds. We still have a lot of white-clawed crayfish. In the south of England, there are very few crayfish natives left. And Martin, what sort of problem do crayfish cause, these signal crayfish? Signal crayfish, because they're bigger, they're more aggressive... Uh, they tend to outcompete for the same habitats, so white claw crayfish get pushed out from habitats to live and, and hunt in. Signal crayfish also bring with them the uh, crayfish plague, which they can carry but aren't so susceptible to. But native crayfish uh, really do suffer from uh, plague outbreaks; it can wipe them out. So those are those are the two of the conservation issues we've got. Also, from the environment agency's perspective, signal crayfish are really good diggers, particularly in soft banks, and they can cause expensive problems in terms of undermining banks, bank collapses and of course the Environment Agency has a responsibility for flood risk so maintaining flood banks is is something that we invest a lot of money in every year. There are two things going on here Alison, the the fact that these signal crayfish are causing damage but also they're carrying this disease which affects the, the native crayfish. So they cause damage to the banks, they compete with the native crayfish and there are two different diseases that are important for who wins that competitive interaction. There's the plague that Martin referred to, which the signal crayfish have brought to this country and it kills the white clawed. The other thing that's fascinating that we're looking at is a parasite called porcelain disease that changes how the native crayfish is able to feed. 
It affects its behaviour and its ability to catch its prey and, as a knock-on effect, its ability to compete with the invader. This sounds a bit like the red squirrel, the native red squirrel and, and the grey squirrel, the, the American invader. It is. It's, very, it's a very similar situation. The plague is analogous to the squirrel pox virus. It was brought in by the invader and is transferred to the native. But the effect that we're looking at, the parasite we're looking at, porcelain disease, is actually a native parasite and it only seems to affect the behaviour of the native crayfish. It makes it more sluggish, less able to catch its prey, which Neil will tell us about. So, Neil, let me bring you in here. Now, you did bring a net with you and you were going to volunteer to go in, but you're not now. It's probably a little bit too cold still this time of year, so they're, they're going to be hiding away and comfortably under rocks. I don't think I'm going to have much success, so sadly my feet will be staying dry. So what did your research involve? What were you looking at? This particular research that we did was some lab-based studies looking at the amount of food that the crayfish were eating. Uh, in particular, we were interested in comparing the amount of food that the invasive crayfish ate, the amount of food the native crayfish ate, and looking at the effect of the disease on the native. And what we found was that the invasive crayfish ate about 83% more food. But not only that, it showed very little choice in what it was eating. The native crayfish with a disease uh, ate, on average, 30% less, and it also ate slower, so it was changing the way that it was eating. But not only this, it was also changing its choice of prey. So instead of going for fast-moving prey, the diseased crayfish were preferring animals that walked along the bottom as they were easy to, easier to catch. So really, the native crayfish was losing out food-wise on all counts? Definitely. The, the native crayfish uh, can't really compete when it comes to eating food with the invasive, and the disease really did knock it for six. Is there anything you can do about that, or is that just a question of trying to remove the invasive species from waterways? Yeah, there's a lot of research going on at the moment trying to find the best way of removing invasive crayfish from waters. Unfortunately, it's proving to be a very difficult situation that may not have an easy solution. So how do you use research like this, Alison? Well, understanding the processes going on in an ecosystem and understanding how important disease can be in modifying interactions, whether it's between an animal and its prey or between an animal and another one with which it competes, are important to understanding how ecosystems are made up, how animals and plants in the stream are made up. And biological invasions are enormously important economically and in terms of biodiversity across the whole globe. In terms of losing our diversity of animals and plants, they're second only after habitat destruction as being a cause of loss of species across the globe. So by understanding in this small beck how disease modifies the interaction between the native and the invasive, we could develop our understanding at a much broader level of invasive species and the importance of disease. So coming back to the the white-clawed British crayfish, does that mean you can save it? I think one of the important things of working, a combination of um, scientists, evidence-based science, working with the Environment Agency, which is under the larger umbrella of the Yorkshire Dales Environment Network, is that we can start to inform the policies and practices that the Environment Agency are using to try and slow the spread of the signal crayfish and to find perhaps sites where we can focus our attention on conserving white-clawed crayfish where they still exist. But it's not all over. It's not like perhaps the red squirrel, grey squirrel, where you've only got these little areas, little islands, really, and literally islands in many cases, where there are still red squirrels. 
The white claw crayfish will continue to decline, both as a result of interactions with the signal and with the disease. But with, I think the Environment Agency have strategies to try and slow the spread of the signal crayfish and to develop isolated populations where we can conserve our native species. So all is not lost? No, all is not lost. Alison, Martin and Neil, thank you all very much. You can read about the crayfish research on Planet Earth Online and I'll take some pictures of the recording here today which you'll find on our Facebook page. You can also follow us on Twitter. To find all those, just search for Planet Earth Online. This is the Planet Earth podcast and we're heading further north now to the Isle of May, a rocky, treeless island near the mouth of the Firth of Forth in eastern Scotland. Depending on the time of year, the island is home to puffins, seals and shags. European shags are of particular interest to Hannah Grist from the University of Aberdeen, who's studying the birds to see how the population varies over winter. Seabirds around the North Sea are under threat from overfishing and climate change, so long-term studies help with their conservation. On one of her regular expeditions to the Isle of May, Hannah took along an audio recorder, and here's her diary. Okay, right, so we're just loading all the kit onto the boat that's going to take us out. It's mainly food and and warm clothes, things like that. The boat itself we're using is a bright orange rib. That's a rigid inflatable boat, which is kind of similar to the ones the Coast Guards use, which means it's it's really a big engine with with about three pairs of seats in a row in the main part, so a, a bit like a fairground ride without any of the seat belts. The really difficult part about it is landing past all the rocks on the island itself, So we have our experienced boatman James to do all the difficult bits and we're just going to sit back and enjoy the ride. Well, we've made it out to the Isle of May safely, but as you can probably hear, the wind is picking up. I can tell you that the sun has definitely gone in and we are currently keeping our fingers crossed that the weather doesn't get any worse and stop us doing what we came out here to do, which is to look for shags. Now, I know what you're thinking, and I can promise you that I have heard all the jokes before. Uh, Shags are actually a type of seabird, about a thousand of which breed on the Isle of May every summer, and we've been studying them for quite a long time now, so we know a lot about their breeding success and what they're eating over the summer months, but we don't know anything about what's happening over the winter months. So what we've come out here to do is to look for the shags that are on here during the breeding season and seeing if they're resident all year round or they're migrating elsewhere like other seabirds. Now, during the winter, shags roost and sleep on either end of the island on the cliffs. So we tend to head out at dawn and dusk to do surveys. I am currently trying to get across the island without a torch, Partly because I don't want to scare anything while I'm doing it. And also because I want my eyes to be adjusted to the light when I get over there. However, this does mean I'm doing it in semi-darkness and trying to walk across rocks and climb over walls, which isn't the easiest thing in the world. I'm not taking the most direct route possible to where I want to go. And that's because I'm currently walking through the middle of one of the UK's largest seal colonies. And I can tell you there are literally hundreds of mothers and pups strewn across the island and I'm taking great care to avoid disturbing any of them. I'm currently nestled down a cliff on a small ledge looking across at a cliff in the distance 
where I can already see about 20 or 30 shags out there and more are coming in all the time as the sun sets and they come off the sea to feed. So if you've never seen a shag, they're quite tall black seabirds, uh, around about the size of a penguin, say. And most people uh, don't tend to look at them because they're not very striking from a distance. But if you see them a bit closer, you'll see that they've got a brilliant iridescent green sheen across the feathers and really piercing green eyes. Now I am currently looking at them closely because I have a telescope with me here which means that I can see individuals on the cliff opposite. And what I'm looking for are what we call colour rings. And so each of the birds that breeds on the Isle of May has had a a large plastic ring attached, which has a three-letter code inscribed on it. And if we can see the colour and the code, it means that we can identify them individually. Now that is easier uh, said than done, although it doesn't sound too difficult to read three letters. Uh, most of the birds will inevitably be standing on the wrong leg and tucking the other one up so you can't see it. Uh, Alternatively, they'll be walking across the cliffs and they do have a tendency to fall over quite a lot because they're much better in water than land. And so trying to read three letters sideways from a distance on the move is is definitely much more of a challenge than you would uh, initially think. However, if we do manage to do that, uh, it's fantastic because it means that we can see what's happening to an individual year-round. So we can see what age it breeds, how many chicks it has, and where it's spending the winter. So we get a chance to look at anything that affects the individual. And it means that we get a much better idea of of what's happening to the population as a whole. Now it's really good for me as well to identify them at an individual level. Because it means that I start to see the same individuals again and again. And you can get quite involved with, with watching them all the time. Uh, for example, at the moment, I'm, I'm looking through the scope and I can see uh, Red D-E-N. And I've been watching him all winter and last winter as well. And it means that I know he's sat on the same spot every time and will always come back to it quite late on in the day and will turf off any juveniles that have dared to sit on the uh, the metre of rock that he prefers to be on. And at the moment, I, I can see that he's he's trying to, uh, to find a mate and he seems to be courting uh, one particular female and courting for shags. Uh, means they're they're preening each other's necks and uh, shouting at each other a lot, um, and they tend to curl their necks round each other and put their heads together. So it's kind of a, a equivalent of a shag hug. Now I know a lot of people think I'm absolutely crazy when I say I spend my time out on Scottish cliffs in the winter, uh, and I, I would occasionally agree with them. But really, I mean, my commute in the mornings is a ten-minute walk uh, between seals and rabbits with no cars or people or or other noise and I get to sit here and I I get to watch the sunset over the the sea I mean my job basically is to to sit here and watch wildlife all day and who wouldn't want to do that I think that's one of my favourite audio diaries we've ever had. Hannah Grist on the Isle of May. And we'll put some pictures from Hannah on our Facebook page. If you'd like to hear more of our audio diaries featuring mongooses, geese and dead whales, then you can listen to every single Planet Earth podcast we've ever made. You'll find those on Planet Earth Online. Look to the sky and you'll probably see some frozen ice crystals with names like Cumulus, Cirrus or Stratus. 
clouds, in other words. But David Hooper is interested in the more unusual noctilucent clouds that are only seen in two months of the year. A scientist at the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory, he's engaged in research at the MST radar facility near Aberystwyth. Now, MST stands for Mesosphere, Stratosphere and Troposphere, but noctilucent clouds are only found in one of those atmospheric regions. Sue Nelson met up with David to find out more. Noctilucent clouds are one of the rarest clouds that you're likely to see in the atmosphere, but at the same time it's something anybody, if they know when to go and look, can see. They form up at about 85 kilometres, which is very high up in the atmosphere. Most of the clouds you see day to day will only be in the lowest few kilometres and certainly not above 15 kilometres, so you're really much, much higher. The other thing is they only form during the midsummer months of June and July, and what we'd say is a middle and upper latitude. So anywhere in the British Isles, you have the chance to see these. And you need to wait until the sunset and gone a bit below the horizon. So dawn and dusk during the midsummer months, that's the time to go and see noctilucent clouds. How can you tell an, a noctilucent cloud from, say, a, a cumulus cloud that everybody's familiar with, the fluffy ones? You need to wait for the sun to set below the horizon. 85 kilometres, it takes a lot longer for the sun to set than it does on the ground. So you need to wait maybe half an hour, an hour after sunset. The word noctilucent itself means night shining. These clouds look sort of silvery. They're very often very thin sort of filament structures, and you'll see them glowing, whereas the lower clouds, the typical clouds you'll see, will tend to be quite grey by then, if there are any. In fact, you've got a, a picture for me here on your computer screen, and you're right, they are white and shiny and wispy and thread-like. They do tend to be very characteristic, and all these small filaments are quite important. That said, it sometimes is possible to confuse a regular cloud with a noctilucent cloud. But if you've got nominally clear skies, you, you'll know if you do see a good example. Why study these particular clouds? These clouds are interesting because they're in a part of the atmosphere where it's quite hard to study anyway. So clouds, even low down, by watching what clouds are doing, it can tell you a bit about the atmosphere. But the other reason they're particularly of interest to scientists is nobody ever saw them or reports having seen them before, I think it's 1883, which was the time of the eruption of Krakatoa. And within a year or so of that, people started to report sightings of these. And there are indications that maybe they're becoming more common. And there is a bit of a suspicion that that could represent some indication of a changing climate up in the high part of the atmosphere. So you've got these ice clouds at the edge of space... How do you study them? We study not exactly the cloud, but we study a related phenomenon that we call mesosphere summer echoes. And we see this with the radar facility we operate in Aberystwyth. with. And mesosphere being this area above the Earth where you specifically find these clouds? Yeah, the mesosphere actually is quite a broad region. It stretches in altitude between about 50 and 90 kilometres what we're looking at really here is the very top of the mesosphere, really right on the edge of the space environment. So when you're using this radar array, are the echoes that the radar is detecting, are they echoes from the cloud itself, these noctilucent clouds? It's not exactly the cloud, but we know that the cloud determines the echo. What we're really seeing in this part of the atmosphere with the radar are electrons, and this is from high-energy radiation from the sun splitting apart some of the molecules. What happens is these electrons get attached to the cloud, to the ice crystals, and what we're then seeing is the structure, which is driven by the electrons stuck on the ice cloud. And by looking at the relationship between these echoes and the clouds themselves, what are you hoping to determine? Well, 
to some extent, we're just trying to understand what we see with the radar. We run the radar most of the time to study the lower part of the atmosphere, what most people would call the weather. Um, And we also see these echoes, whether we like it or not. So my job really is to try and understand what these additional things we're seeing. Other people are more focused on studying the mesosphere and the regions of the atmosphere above that. So obviously any information we can give them in this very data-sparse region of the atmosphere is potentially going to be helpful. So it's pretty exciting times then to to study these noctilucent clouds? Well, it certainly is for me because it's something we've been observing for six or nearly seven years and never really quite understood what we're looking at. To suddenly see that there is something we can understand, that, that is exciting. David Hooper from the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory on the unusual promise of research on noctilucent clouds. And that's the Planet Earth podcast from the Natural Environment Research Council. I'm Richard Hollingham. Thanks for listening.